Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here together to listen to your words from the book that you have given us to be our guide. And as we study this book and the topic of the 144,000, we pray that your spirit would incline our minds and hearts. I know that everyone in this room you desire to have as part of the 144,000. And Lord, just like our BMI, whether we're part of that is really up to us and whether we take hold of your hand and let go and let your spirit reign. And as we study how to do that this evening, we pray that you would grant us not only your spirit, but also a memory that we can retain these things and bring them forth uh, in due season. In Jesus' name, amen. BMI, what does it stand for? All right. This is a uh, educated group. And uh, you guys aren't, most of you aren't even from Weimar, and you knew that. So that's, uh, that's pretty good. I would expect uh, anyone that works at Weimar to understand uh, what that means. Uh, most people that come to the New Start program have a problem with their body mass index, and uh, some of them significant uh, problems. Uh, the ideal BMI is 18.5 to 22.5. Now, some of you in medical school and other places say, wait a minute, I learned it's between 20 and 25. Uh, well, that, that is the consensus softer type of numbers that they put forward. If you actually look at the insurance company data and the longevity data, it's pretty clear if you're above 22.5, you're not in the ideal range. Uh, the longevity is short and quality of life goes down after 22.5 now. After 25, it goes down even that much more, and after 30, uh, that uh, much more. But the ideal is 18.5 to 22.5. Unless you're a female, you can actually go down to a 17.6 as a female and still be in that optimal ideal range as far as uh, health uh, is concerned. Well, here we go. Not officially overweight in this country until you're greater than 25.0. And you're also not officially obese in this country until you are over, anyone know? Yes, 30.0. And how does this compute for the average individual, particularly those of you that are not uh, medical people? Uh, if we were to take someone who's five foot no inches tall, and the ideal weight for someone that tall is? All right, as a rule of thumb, the ideal weight uh, is 100 pounds. Uh, females, for each inch above five feet, add four pounds. Each inch above five feet for a male, add five pounds. Uh, and that puts you in the middle of that ideal uh, body weight or body mass index. And so you can see how, uh, how you're uh, doing in regards to that. Is BMI genetically determined? 
There may be some genetic predispositions, just like there's genetic predispositions to alcoholism uh, and to uh, all sorts of diseases, heart disease, hyperlipidemia. There's also genetic predispositions to obesity, but the average individual in this country with obesity has no genetic predisposition for it. Uh, and, you know, this is uh, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, we need to understand. It's not because the, you know, this is something that's also probably good to just state as a matter of fact. If you have a obese BMI, you actually have a reduction in your fertility. Uh, significantly so. In fact, there's a patient of mine uh, who recently has dramatically reduced his BMI through lifestyle measures. Uh, he was very overweight, developed diabetes, got in the hospital, and I gave him a book by Neil Barnard. He comes from the secular perspective, so I gave him that book while he was in the hospital with his blood sugars over 300, and talked to him about diet, and he changed his diet dramatically, became a total vegetarian uh, overnight and has lost 60 pounds. And his reproductive life has returned. And uh, not only that, but uh, he has a lot of other enhancements in his life. He says, my life is just so much better. I had no idea all of the problems that was being caused by my diet and obesity, etc. And so in reality, just based on that fact alone, if BMI was genetically determined, just based on the evolutionary selection theory, we should actually wipe out obesity from the planet within you know, several X generations. Uh, but uh, it's, not a, it's not simply a genetic disease. The genetic uh, portion of it is actually becoming less uh, common. And so BMI is actually determined by uh, other uh, things. And so what does determine your BMI? Well, when you eat, what you eat, in fact, let's, let me go back to when you eat. Uh, what do you think the best meal of the day is for you if you want to lose weight? And what do most people with challenged BMIs miss? That's right. And they often say that they're missing it because they want to lose weight. Uh, and in reality, Dr. Cup in Louisiana did a study on 595 obese patients, and he put them on a healthy breakfast. That was part of the program. But they couldn't eat anything after 3 o'clock in the afternoon or eight and a half hours before they went to bed. They could drink water, but that was it. They could eat breakfast, lunch, but no supper. How do you think those 595 obese patients did? He actually didn't control their calorie intake. He didn't tell them what to eat. Everyone who followed the program lost weight. And uh, there were some that only ate breakfast. They lost an average of 10 pounds per month. If you ate breakfast and lunch, you averaged about six pounds a month uh, on that program. So when you eat is important. What, as far as the BMI of the 144,000, when do you think it's best to get your nutrition. The morning time is the best time. And that 
uh, assures that you're going to get the good nutrition, and it also assures that you're going to live a more balanced life during that day's time, which is part of what the 144,000 life is like, a balanced life. What you eat is also important. Uh, a lot of times people are talking about how much you eat, and of course that is important as well. But there's a lot of people that have high BMIs that don't eat very much. So why is their BMI so high? We'll get into that here in a little bit. Uh, how honest you are. <laughs> Did you know that there's a relationship there? Uh, studies were done on people. One of the most common complaints that overweight people state is, you know, I'm not eating very much. <laughs> I, you know, really, I don't eat very much. If you could just follow me around, I don't eat very much. And so the challenge was for the studiers to follow these people around. And so those people would then write down what they ate and how much they ate. That was part of the whole program. Uh, but they would do it at the end of the day. So they'd remember what they eat, and then they would record it. And then they followed people who, were, who had good BMIs around. And then they also did their diary about what they ate and how much they ate. And what they found out is those who had an elevated BMI significantly forgot about things that they ate that day. <laughs> <laughs> they just didn't record them. And, uh, you know, the, that was probably the best um, way that they could put it. But they said, you know, they just, there was a significant discrepancy in regards to what the person thought they had eaten that day and what they had actually eaten. Uh, and so honesty actually is one of those characteristics that's more tightly connected with having a more ideal BMI. Now that's not to say everyone with an above, BM, uh, above uh, what you should be as far as BMI is having problems with honesty, but it could be. And now this is the latest study. Obesity is very much a problem with emotions. And in fact, many people eat as a form of self-medicating. It's why the soda pops continue to fly off the shelves of grocery stores. Sugar temporarily improves those dopamine and serotonin levels, making the person feel emotionally better for a short period of time. And, the, and it goes down. But what studies are showing is those that have an elevated BMI have significant problems with impulse control. And that gets into the heart of emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is very much connected to uh, a BMI in many cases. And of course, physical exercise is also connected. The more physical exercise, the more easy it is to control that BMI. And exercise, how would we uh, relate to that as far as the faith aspect of things? or as far as the spiritual part, I kind of already gave the clue. Exercise actually is that those skeletal exercise muscles is very much connected to the exercise of faith. In fact, the scriptures talk about exercising your faith. Uh, and so if we're not exercising our faith, we're really not going to be able to have the BMI of the 144,000. 
Uh, it's a crucial element. It's not just the eating part. It's not just controlling the eating. It's not just when the eating, but also that physical exercise part that is crucially related. Just a little bit as we start this presentation on what you eat. Each picture that you're going to see here uh, has 250 calories. That's a third of a cup of peanuts. And by the way, the average individual uh, would consume around 2,000 calories a day. So if you're eating three meals a day, you know, it would be 750 calories maybe for the first two and 500 uh, for the third meal if you're going to be having a third meal. So this would be a third of your meal in calories, 250 calories. Uh, one cup of avocado, 250 calories. A third of a cup of almonds, 250 calories. Just a half cup of raisins. Uh, more prunes, two-thirds of a cup of prunes. Uh, just one and two-thirds ounces of potato chips. And you can see why many people are not eating very much, but they're gaining weight because you don't have to eat. Can you imagine just having twice that amount and your meal's over with? That's it. Uh, as far as your calorie intake for that particular meal. Uh, that's uh, four ounces of steak. Doesn't look very appetizing, does it? Four and a half cups of popcorn. So you're only a third of the way through. You've got to eat 15 cups. Uh, in order to uh, maintain your weight on that popcorn, but just 1.7 ounces of M&Ms. Four tablespoons of honey. And the book of Proverbs, Solomon says, it's not good to eat much honey. Uh, he knew what he was talking about uh, there. Uh, and just two and a half tablespoons of peanut butter, five tablespoons of jelly, uh, almost uh, three bananas, <laughs> yogurt, one point, uh, well, it's, it's about one and a fifth cup of yogurt there for 250 calories, but just five ounces of fish, not much there. 2.2 uh, cups of Orange juice and three whole oranges. Cup of cottage cheese for 250 calories. Look at the zucchini you can eat for 250 calories. That's 2.6 pounds of zucchini. And if you are just trying to maintain your weight, you would have to do that two times more for your lunch before you were through, if that's all you were going to eat. Now, if that's all you were going to eat, by the way, you would have all eight of your essential amino acids uh, in enough amounts. Uh, you would have enough vitamin C. You would have enough of a whole host of nutrients just by eating one food in enough proportion to maintain your weight. Now, that isn't going to be the case with those things that were caloric dense. There's a lot of empty calories there. You're not going to get eight essential amino acids by eating three times that 1.7 ounces of M&Ms, uh, for instance. Uh, 
Let's see where we're at. This is oil, two tablespoons of oil. Uh, one of the reasons why oil is very much discouraged as part of the New Start therapeutic program. This is 2.2 pounds of, what are those? No, those are mushrooms, that's right. Broccoli, 2.2 pounds of broccoli. Pounds of broccoli. And notice what's that, what that is equivalent to as far as calories on this next slide. <laughs> Same exact amount of calories. This is uh, one and a quarter pounds of carrots, but not even a half cup of jelly beans, 40% of a cup. Anyone want to guess how much that weighs? That's 3.4 pounds of celery, 250 calories. Grapes, not as much, three quarters of a pound. Just a cup of mashed potatoes. That's it, 250 calories. And you can see why people are actually, in many cases, telling the truth when they're saying, I'm not eating very much. Now, what would happen when they were not telling the truth is they would just forgot that they even ate the cheese. You know, it's kind of um, bad enough that they did it, but it must not have been that good if they didn't remember it. And so, you know, was it really worth it if they didn't remember it? Look at that as far as how much tomatoes, 2.6 pounds of tomatoes, 24 pieces of those small pieces of gum, 2.4 cups of oatmeal, but only a little bit of chicken there, third of a cup of sugar, that's your whole wheat pasta, uh, it's more uh, caloric dense, and butter even much more caloric dense, that's just one ounce of butter there. Corn, 8.3 ounces of corn, four ounces of ham, 15 ounces of apples, or two large apples, and that's a whole head of cabbage. 250 calories, but not even a whole Butterfinger <laughs> for the same amount. This is your corn uh, macaroni, six ounces. This is a small double cheeseburger, and it's not even a half of one. It's 40% of a double cheeseburger. Kale, 27 and a half ounces of kale, but less than a half of French fries, McDonald's French fries for 250 calories. 0.7 cup of vanilla ice cream. This is almost three cups of skim milk, 250 calories, but notice the difference as far as whole milk. Not even two, one and two thirds cup. This is the slices of whole wheat bread, three and two thirds slices of whole wheat bread. And that's it, as far as your Hershey's milk chocolate is concerned. Fig Newtons, four and a half pieces. And then your Dove chocolate squares. That's it, six, a little over six for 250 calories. And so uh, there, is some, uh, there is some application there when it comes to the BMI of the 144,000. When you take a look at impulse control and you take a look at empty calories, some people are spending their time on daily activities to get an emotional rush that doesn't produce anything positive for them as far as their mind, body, and soul is concerned. And uh, 
and thus we see uh, a relationship there. Well, tonight we're going to study the Word of God, and we're going to study what the Word of God has to say about the uh, 144,000. First question is, who are the 144,000? And I actually uh, uh, brought a uh, Bible that I would like to trade. Let's see, do I have uh, uh, your remnant study Bible there? Thank you very much. Uh, it's a great study Bible, by the way. Mark Tay allowed me to borrow his Bible, and he's borrowing uh, four versions over there that was much smaller writing uh, for me. Who are the 144,000? Revelation 7. We're going to be studying extensively Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 tonight. Verse 1, after these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Do you think that's talking about today? Are the winds of strife being held back? Yes, they are being held back. And in fact, if the Lord would have just allowed the natural consequences of humanity's actions to take hold, uh, we would be in far worse crisis than we are today as a world. Far worse. It's only because of the staying hand of those four angels that we're not in worse condition. And then verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So... Here is an introduction. Verse 4 says, I heard the number of those who were sealed. And there it is, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. How do we know if we are the servants of God? Notice that phrase in verse... Yeah, the servants of our God was Revelation 7, 3. But let's turn over to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from what? The heart. And so we're not doing the will of God out of... Uh, you know, not because we're not wanting to in, in, enjoy the word. Many people, um, and you know, it's actually a good thing. I've, you know, someone was t- talking to me about um, legalism in the Seventh Day Adventist Church and the problems that it causes people. And yeah, there are some problems that come about. But did you know a legal, someone who is a legalist is a Seventh Day Adventist? If they really are keeping the law of God in their own strength save themselves a whole lot of trouble. They actually live a far better life than a non-legal lot. <laughs> Someone who doesn't have legalism problems as the Seventh-day Adventist and doesn't have um, a saving relationship with the Lord. 
because those people are getting themselves into all sorts of trouble just as a simple result of their repeated sinful activities. Uh, and so uh, this is, in, in fact, you know, having said that, uh, there are times when our will isn't the Lord's will. And that's why in Ephesians 6, verse 6, he said, bondservant. That root word for bondservant is slave. Now, uh, I taught the Sabbath school lesson last week, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. We might turn to it. Romans. This great, I'm looking forward to our uh, Sabbath school lesson this quarter. I think it's the, one of the best expositions Probably the most uh, detailed exposition you'll see of the gospel is in the book of Romans. But Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the what? The gospel of God. Paul is saying, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. Now, when the owner of a slave tells a slave what to do, what does the slave do? The slave just does it just obeys whatever that owner of the slave says. But notice, at the end of verse 1, he called this the gospel. What's the word for gospel? Good news. He says it is, a good, news, it is good news to be a slave to Jesus Christ. Now, many people are shy away from Christianity because they feel like they don't want to be giving their life over to someone else like a slave would do. But Paul says when we do that to the Lord Jesus, it is good news. It's only good news. And Ephesians 6, how do we know if we are the servants of God? If we have that type of relationship that whatever he says, we'll do. And... In addition, if whatever he says, we'll do, and we'll do it because we want to do it. Sometimes we may not completely understand it, but we'll develop that trusting relationship so much so that no matter what he tells us to do, we're going to go forward and do it and do it cheerfully and willingly because we know that's best for us. What is the will of God? Let's look at Psalms 40. Verse 8, Paul told us to be a servant of God is to do his will and to do it willingly. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your what? Law is within my heart. The psalmist equates the will of God with following the law of God. And Isaiah 8.16 adds to that. Bind up the testimony. Seal the what? The law among my disciples. The will of God is actually there in his law. And part of what the 144,000 keep, and it's stated repeatedly in Revelation, is the commandments of God. And that is the will of God. You know, a lot of people want to talk about doing the will of the Lord, but they don't want to talk about his commands. And uh, they're synonymous. Uh, 
and uh, we really can't separate them. What symbols does the Bible use to describe the 144,000? Uh, let's read further in Revelations chapter 7. We could uh, go back to there, Revelation chapter 7. Very interesting portion of scripture here is the, the symbolic description. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And it says of the tribes of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. And it goes on all the way there through uh, verse 8 in regards to the tribes. Now, if you take a look at what these words mean, it's kind of interesting to put it together in the order that the Lord had us uh, there in the book of Revelation. Judah means I will praise the Lord. Next is mentioned what? Reuben. Reuben, he has looked on me. Do you remember the story of Reuben? The Leah-Rachel thing, and when the first child came through Leah, she realized the Lord had looked on her, and Reuben was named that. The Lord has looked on me. Gad is third, given good fortune. Fourth is Asher, happy am I. Naphtali, my wrestling. Manasseh, making me to forget. And again, this is, uh, this is uh, who, was, who named Manasseh? Joseph. What was he wanting to forget? Forget what? His sorrow, and his sorrow was caused by what? By his brothers. And the way the brothers related to him. I think it's very clear that Joseph suffered from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. He couldn't get, in fact, we're even told by the spirit of prophecy that he could years later still hear the exact tone of the voice and who said it and what they said about him during that last 24 hours before he was sold into slavery, never to see his family uh, for many years uh, thereafter. Making me to forget uh, is there, part of the trauma uh, that had been experienced. And by the way, despite that PTSD, he refused to let his life uh, be controlled by that. And uh, in addition to that, he powerfully looked for evidence that would not support his emotions when his brothers came forward to him. Uh, he systematically looked for evidence to support a different way of thinking than what he was currently thinking about them. And did he find that evidence? He actually did, and he acted on that evidence. God hears me, Simeon, Levi, attached to me. Issachar, purchased me. Zebulun, dwelling. Joseph, God will add to me, and Benjamin, son of his right hand. And if we were to take a look at the BMI of the 144,000 through these names, this is what it says. And by the way, this is like reading the old King James where the italicized word is added to the text. And so, uh, I will praise the Lord for he has looked on me and given good fortune, 
Happy am I because my wrestling. God is making me to forget. God hears me and is attached to me. He has purchased me a dwelling, and God will add to me the son of his right hand. Almost worth committing to memory uh, in regards to, I think it really is worth committing to memory in regards to the, this is probably a good synopsis of the BMI of the 144,000. And if you take a look at that whole statement there, it's, pre, it's pretty powerful when we contemplate on it. These names in this order describe the story of the church's struggle, the church's redemption, the church's victory, and the church's marriage to the Lamb. All things that the 144,000 will participate in. There's two names not listed that were part of the 12 tribes. Dan and Ephraim. They had sins that they did not overcome. And that's why they were not included. And what were their sins? Each one had different ones. For Dan, it was what? Criticism. That judgmental spirit. Watch out for it. Criticism for Dan. And what was it for Ephraim? Indulgence. And by the way, those two sins tend to raise themselves powerfully up as the big inhibitors of participating in the joys of the 144,000. Names can also denote ownership. In the ancient world, slaves were designated by the mark of the owner in the forehead of the slave. It was actually there, that mark, that tattoo, denoting who they belonged to. And it's one of the reasons why the Bible talked about this language, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. In other words, until that ownership is clear and manifested continually. What does it mean that 144,000 have the name of God? We can see that having God's name on one's forehead means that the 144,000 are servants of God. He has taken ownership of them, and by adopting them is even better than sons and daughters. And if you want to know about better than, Isaiah would give you the answer than that. And the forehead reflects the forebrain. The forebrain is the center of spirituality, morality, and the will. You'll see that those words used in secular neurology textbooks today. We also see that God's character has been transcribed into the spirituality, morality, and the will of the 144,000. This is in contrast to the wicked remnant, all of whom carry the name, number, or mark of the beast in their forehead or their hand. And so they don't all, they're not all marked in their forehead as the servants of God are because they're not all participating in it as far as their frontal lobe is concerned. Uh, some have been deceived and are participating in it, but many of them just have it in their hand. They're just going along with it because of that emotional reasoning, part of the problems that, uh, that uh, those that are not part of the 144,000 run into, just uh, acting upon their emotions to try to avoid pain and suffering, and they end up getting more as a result. There's an ethnic term to use to describe the 144,000 in Revelation 7. Did you catch it? What's the ethnic term of the 144,000? Israel. They were all, we would call them Jews today, but they were all children of Israel. And what does it mean to be part 
of Israel. Let's turn to Galatians, the sixth chapter. We'll have a few answers here in Galatians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right after Corinthians. Galatians 6, the last chapter, verse 15, says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but a what? A new creature or creation, as the New King James says. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Part of being uh, part of Israel is to be a new creature. And that's part of that gospel, the good news of the gospel as well. How can we tell if we are a new creature? Well, just back in Galatians chapter 5, he gives us that answer earlier. Uh, I think it's Galatians 5 verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, he used the same term, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails nothing. But what? Faith working through love. It's faith working through love that is a faith that manifests itself in love, that demonstrates that we are really that new creature. How can we know if we, well, let's see, I think I, uh, how can we know if we have this experience? 1 Corinthians, just uh, a little more forward, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19 Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. You can see the repetition here. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And keeping the commandments of God. The Israel of God are those who truly love and follow God as demonstrated in obedience to his will, in obedience to his commands. Well, let's now turn over to Revelation 14, where we get a more complete picture. Revelation 7 gives us that picture, and then Revelation 14. Both divisible by seven. And, of course, this is where the three angels' messages are, but we'll get into the first five verses before we get to the three angels' messages. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Interesting. And by the way, who has the voice of many waters? Yeah, we won't uh, turn to it because of time, but Revelation 1 clearly states that whenever you hear that voice of many waters, it's Jesus' voice. That voice that is so distinct, uh, and those 144,000 have learned that distinct voice. What is the new song that only the 144,000 sing? It's called the Song of Moses and the Lamb. They sing a song which relates to their unique experience upon the earth. Since no other men or women have shared in their experience, no one else can fully comprehend the meaning of their song. And that's why only they can sing it. 
what is the song of Moses and the Lamb? Revelation 15.3, just forward, gives us that answer. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. It's a song of deliverance, just as the song of Moses was. The experience of the 144,000 is one experiencing the wrath of God upon the earth unmixed with mercy. They are sustained and delivered by God through this terrible time of trouble. And that's why it's such a song of deliverance. I'm looking forward to hearing that song. And uh, better yet, why not be a participant? Uh, and, you know, there's times when it's far more a blessing to be a participant in singing than there is in viewing. I've been a member of choir many times. And I can tell you on those great anthems, um, the moving aspect of what takes place by singing that song is something that you don't want to miss out on. And uh, this is going to be one of those moving periods of time. Revelation 14, verse 4. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And by the way, what, are, what does a woman represent? A church. And if they were not defiled by women... Now, the 144,000 is actually called as part of the pure woman. So it's not because uh, they don't, they're not equated with any women at all. But it's talking about they're not actually lining themselves up with false churches. That's what the women are there. There's lots of women that are false women. There's only one true woman. And, uh, and so it is with any uh, man that's married. There's a lot of women out there uh, that they can commit adultery with, but there's only one uh, that is the rightful woman. What does it mean to be undefiled by women? They've separated themselves from false women. God's people separate from false churches at the end of time to be part of that. 144,000 are declared to be the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. That was the end of verse 4. They were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And what does this mean? Um, actually, I think it's worth turning to these two. Exodus 23, verse 19. The first... Of the first fruits of your land, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, which is uh, really should be part of another verse or another thought. But what we're centering on here is the first fruits of the first fruits of your land shall bring where? Into the house of the Lord your God. Now let's compare that with James. James chapter 1 from the New Testament, verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he brought us forth to the word of truth and he brought us into the house of God which actually is a sanctuary. The first fruits were those who were brought into God's sanctuary. God's sanctuary is part 
of the teachings of the 144,000, part of what they live by, and it's part of what they are accustomed to in coming to his sanctuary. 144,000 follow the lamb wherever he goes, Revelation 14 tells us. And what does this mean? 1 John, close to Revelation, tells us what this means in verse 2. To follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So wherever that leads, they're focused on Jesus' words and ways. And they're part of their thoughts, their moment-by-moment thoughts. Then Revelation 14 tells us something else that they have. Verse 5 of Revelation 14, In their mouth was found no, what? Guile, for they were without fault before the throne of God. The New King James actually spells it out, deceit. And the Bible interprets that as having no guile. Guile refers to deception, lies, and falsehood. The 144,000 not only don't lie, they abhor and depart from anything associated with falsehood or deception. And they also, Revelation 14 also says they are without fault. Who does this remind you of? Jesus, yes. They're following Jesus wherever he goes. Jesus was without fault. But there's someone else, you know, part of the 144,000. In fact, this is how I kind of look at it in a simplistic way. The devil won in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve fell. Christ won as the second Adam. And the way it's being looked at, it's best two out of three. And the third aspect, this is why it's the final crisis, the third aspect of who really wins is can Christ's life be carried out, not in just one person, but in an entire group of people consistently and fully? And if so, there's no question who's won. It's best two out of three. And there's someone in the scripture that wasn't Christ that says there was no fault. They looked. Daniel. Daniel chapter 6, verse 4 says, They looked. And by the way, there was 120 of them looking. <laughs> and they were looking and they couldn't find any fault whatsoever. Daniel was without fault during a time of judgment and a time of trouble. He feared God and gave him glory by overcoming his faults through his faith in Jesus. This picture of Daniel is repeated in the 144,000. They are without fault, because of that consistent faith in Jesus, being a bondservant to the Lord and following him wherever he goes. So the BMI of the 144,000, let's summarize. 144,000 are part of God's end-time remnant people. We got that from Revelation 7. They are saved and sealed by God. They represent God's Israel at the end of time. They are represented by Jesus and a new song. And by the way, tomorrow in the uh, breakout session, we're going to be talking more details about that new song. What is music 
that is appropriate for being part of the 144,000. Not, not only appropriate, but what is going to lead them heavenward. Uh, we'll get into the studies uh, on that as well as some of the inspiration on that. They have separated themselves from false churches. They are the first fruits to God. They enter into his sanctuary. They are men and women from every nation. And by the way, the 144,000, the term that's used for men, some people have said, well, this isn't women. But the, term, the Greek word for man is anthropos, which means mankind. It's men and women. It's not just men. They follow the lamb in his words and ways. They have no guile. They shun all deceit and lies. And they are without fault before God's throne. I ask you this evening, do you desire to be part of the 144,000? Do you desire to follow God's ideal plan for your BMI? And not just BMI physically, this is far more important than having a BMI of 20. Uh, this is really being part of being used of God in this last hour of Earth's history to spread the good news to the rest of this world. And if you desire to be part of the 144,000 and really desire to participate in every aspect of what the 144,000 are a part of, I invite you to stand and notify the Lord at this time. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing to us in advance the type of people who will be victors with you during the final crisis of Earth's history. And Lord, as we look forward to that crisis, we recognize that Peter fell at the time of your crucifixion for two reasons. Really, he didn't understand the seriousness of the crisis to come. And secondly, he didn't understand the weakness of his own heart. Help us, Lord, to understand the seriousness of the crisis. It is going to be relentless in its fury. But also help us to understand the weakness of our own human heart. Help us to realize there is no way that we can be part of this without 100% complete dependence upon you. In submission to you, as a slave would to a master. But help us to realize, as the Apostle Paul did, that this type of slavery is not bad news. This type of slavery opens up the best news that could be imaginable. May each one here participate fully in what it means to be part of the 144,000 from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.